Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to the Brainstorm episode 25. Today, we're talking about other founders leaving companies, not Sam Altman anymore, but we're talking about Cruise. And then we're going to go to some battery updates and the electric vehicle market. Tasha, thank you for joining us. Maybe we can just dive in and do a recap of the, the work you've been looking at on safety and cruise. Yeah. So the news that you referenced is that the um, Kyle uh, Boat, who was the CEO of Cruise, also a founder of Cruise, uh, recently left. Big disappointment. Uh, you know, we talked about in, um, on this brainstorm in the past how crews, um, they've halted all their operations. <clears throat> they don't have any cars uh, operating, you know, with a person in them or not at this point. Uh, so it really seems dire, although, you know, still exists. I, I don't know what's in their future. So I'm disappointed. But um, yeah, this past week, I tweeted out a chart um, that might explain what happened. So on Twitter, if you check it out, um, the adjusted million miles per crash on surface streets. That's what I'm calling the statistics. So what is it? Okay, it's like number of miles per crash, why surface streets, or if you wanna call it city streets, it's the same thing. Um, so these are basically non-highway miles. So previously I'd done an, an analysis to look at um, Tesla full self-driving um, versus the national average. And this was back when um, the full self-driving stat was before the stack was fully integrated. So when off-highway autopilot was something different than on-highway autopilot, it was two different software stacks. Now it's the same. But at the time that this was reported, it was different. So I adjusted the national average crash statistics for that um, because there's actually the, um, the crash rate on uh, city streets per mile or service streets per mile is worse than the highway. Um, so when you look at that, okay, so this makes the national average 0.19 uh, 
million miles per crash on surface streets. Again, my adjustments to the national statistics, a manually driven Tesla, slightly better than that at 0.6. That's really the, the data point to benchmark Tesla against, which is 3.2 million miles per surface street crash. Uh, so, you know, a lot better than a manually driven Tesla. But the question is, how does that compare to Cruise and Waymo? Okay, so Waymo we have at 0.5, so half a million miles per crash. And Cruise coming in at the lowest, at least on this graph, 0.4, so you know, 40,000 miles a crash. And what is that quickly? So the, the numbers that I took for Waymo and Cruise are what the companies self-report as what is comparable to the national average. Because with an autonomous car, it's like you touch the thing and it could be an accident, right? So they adjust it to like what people actually report if they were driving these cars around on an everyday basis. Um, importantly, both of these companies put out uh, crash statistics report that make their cars look much better than I'm showing. And the reason is because they drill down and they say, no, it's we should look at, Cruise says, hey, we should look at ride hailing in San Francisco. Let's get ride hail data for San Francisco specifically to where we drive. And in that case, our numbers look better than average. Waymo does the same thing. So they, they drill down to um, not necessarily ride hail, but driving data specific to Phoenix and uh, California where they operate versus what, what they're doing. And they say, you know, we're better than average. But, you know, the thing is Waymo, if you even compare on my stats, looks better than the national average here adjusted for off-highway miles. But Cruise is the lowest. So what does it show? So Cruise was taking on more risk than Pierce. And, you know, that's showing up in this horrible accident that they had where they dragged someone something like 20 feet. Um, they're probably moving at a really slow speed in San Francisco when this happened, but I mean, it's, it doesn't sound great. Um, so it looks like what's happened. Um, and I, again, I'm disappointed. Like I was rooting for Cruise. Obviously uh, we talk about Tesla all the time, but you know, Cruise, Waymo, they actually got to market. Um, so it was worth paying attention to. Cruise was being really aggressive and expanding into other cities. And we were excited about that because we thought, well, they're, you know, they're being more aggressive than Waymo. Maybe they'll get to scale faster than Waymo, but sadly seems to come to an end as of now and it's an interesting response i guess from management and kind of shows the corporate versus startup mentality in you know they quickly halted everything nationwide it wasn't like hey we can fix this quickly here's an over-the-air update like let's keep going this is safer so we need to fight for it um which seems like a pretty 180 response from what you know we've seen in the past with someone like Tesla. What what do you make of that? Is that the right read into it, or is there something else going on? I mean, you know, since we're not regulatory experts, like I would I would assume that this is such a dire measure that they had to take that they saw some reason that made them think, oh, we have to do this. Oh, we have to halt operations everywhere, not just California. And we have to halt operations, even with human drivers in the car. Like, that's extreme. I don't think that they would do that unless they absolutely thought that they had to. So I would say, like, my guess, my personal guess is that, yes, while they might be, like, more cautious with the G with GM as a parent, um, that in reality, you know, they might have they felt like they had to do this because of the regulator conversations, um, which is unfortunate. What do you think this means now for Waymo and Tesla? 
Um, Waymo's out there with their ride hailing app in certain markets. Tesla has their FSD approach. So what do you think it means for both of these two companies? Great question. Um, for Waymo, you know, well, one out of the commercial operations, Waymo now looks the best. But I think, uh, you know, one secondary effect of this was Waymo had crews biting at their heels. You know, Waymo launched commercially first, but crews started launching in a major city first. And then Waymo started expanding. You know, maybe they would have done that anyways, but maybe they saw a oh, cruise is announcing all these cities. We've got to get moving. Let's get to L.A. Let's launch San Francisco. So I think the sad thing is that, you know, they no longer have that direct, very comparable competition. They definitely still have Tesla as a competitor, but Tesla hasn't launched a commercial service yet, to be fair. Um, I do think that for both Waymo and Tesla, that Cruise kind of shows them, well, one, Waymo and Cruise both had to pave this path with regulators that Tesla hasn't gone through yet because Tesla doesn't, Tesla has like street legal cars that are in consumers' hands. It's not prototype cars with LiDAR and all these other sensors that need to be approved in order to even drive on public roads. They're consumer ready cars already. So they haven't gone through the same regulatory approval process, but they will have to go through an approval process if and when they launch ride hail, which we think they will. Um, and you can find that in our test evaluation blog. Um, so, you know, it paves somewhat the regulatory path for Tesla. Uh, you know, leaves a Waymo competitor uh, at the wayside. Maybe sadly Waymo doesn't have to move as fast now and maybe doesn't even want to because now they see there's like extra risk. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, look, I'm still confident that autonomous cars are the future of transportation, right? Autonomous electric cars, no question in my mind. Um, but I think this is just like a sad um, hiccup that's happened along the way. Okay, Sam, let's move on to our next topic. A lot of noise out there about sodium ion batteries. Maybe set this up for us. Help us understand why this is a different approach than what's out there in the market and what all the new news is about. Sure. So sodium ion is just a different chemistry for a battery. Um, and I'll go into that more. But why is it making headlines now? Uh, you have CATL who's a big Chinese battery manufacturer, they've been investing in sodium ion batteries and are starting to ramp up. Most recently, Northvolt, which is a European battery producer, put out a press release saying that they developed a state-of-the-art sodium ion battery um, at a higher energy density than is typically the case. And so, all right, from, from the top here, what is energy density? It's the amount of energy so watt hours or kilowatt hours uh, per unit of mass. So typically kilogram. And the trend in the battery industry from the very beginning will start with NMC. This is nickel, manganese, cobalt. And these were the highest energy density batteries. And if you went back, you know, seven years, this is what pretty much everyone was using. And the thought was, okay, everyone's going to keep on developing more and more energy dense nickel, manganese, cobalt batteries. And that's just going to be how EVs can compete against gas powered cars. And so everyone looks at this and they say, oh my goodness, like look at how much nickel this is going to use. Look at how much cobalt this is going to use. That's going to be a huge, huge problem. And then, you know, somewhat out of nowhere, if you weren't, if you weren't following along, there is another chemistry coming along called uh, lithium iron phosphate. And so this got rid of the nickel and the cobalt. 
And so then all of a sudden, you know, people are like, oh, you know, we don't have a nickel problem. We don't really have a cobalt problem anymore. But they say the problem with LFP was it's lower energy density. So you're not going to have super, super long range vehicles using LFP cells, but they're probably good enough for mass market vehicles. And we're seeing that with companies like BYD um, in China, Tesla's using them in their vehicles as well. Um, and so it's pretty good. And now, you know, the reaction was, oh, LFP, you know, lithium, it's going to be so hard. We're going to be in a supply constrained environment, uh, for the next decade. And you saw lithium prices just shot up. Now they've really almost reset, not, not quite there, still elevated, but on their way down. Um, and so now, you know, people are making the analogy to what LFP did to NMC with what sodium ion could do to LFP. So sodium ion, no lithium. And so it could help alleviate some of those issues, but again, it's lower energy density. And so people are saying, maybe this isn't good enough for vehicles, but Northvolt is saying, you know, maybe there are breakthroughs to be had that make it so it can compete with lithium iron more, uh, apples to apples. Uh, all of this being said, sodium ion seems like there's definitely a use case in energy storage, stationary energy storage, where energy density might not matter as much because you're not moving it anywhere. It's just sitting there. Um, so that was uh, that's like a, a quick crash course on the history and uh, potential trajectory of the battery market. Yeah, no, that's super helpful context. I guess my one question in hearing you explain this is around why you know companies are looking to continue to shift the battery chemistry is it specifically just because of the supply and demand of these certain uh metals and materials or are people still looking to just truly innovate in the battery market like do you think that there is i guess do you think there's a potential that you know we find a new chemistry or battery that is, you know, just kind of blows out of the water what has been historically understood ar around kind of performance. I don't want to say never because that's a always a mistake. Uh, but I would say the history of batteries has been incremental improvement. So do I think there's going to be some, you know, magic breakthrough that changes everything? I think that's unlikely. But I do think this evolution of new chemistries replacement um, of various materials is going to continue. And I think a lot of what's driving it is end use application and cost. And so if you can have sodium ion batteries that are significantly less expensive than lithium iron phosphate, then I think that's a, a huge win for everyone really. Um, and I guess one of the difficulties is exactly what you said, you know, ensuring that the supply is there and these technologies and new chemistries take a long time to ramp up. And so, you know, you have to plan for that with whatever you're developing. And I'll say, you're right, this is on the low end. Sodium ion is low end disruption, I would say. And then it's, you know, you kind of have solid state, which is more innovation on the higher end which is high energy density, um, different characteristics you're going after. So people are innovating constantly in labs all 
different areas trying to optimize for various things. Um, and sodium ion is somewhat gaining traction here because it is this low-end disruptor that has clear end-use applications. And uh, one question I always have is how long do these batteries last for when there you know, is a new breakthrough or you have this new chemistry formula? Are they able to kind of predict out into the future? Oh, well, this should last X amount of years. And does that then determine, and is it considered in when you say new state of the art, or is it always just pegged to that, um, the, the, you know, energy density figure, or are they factoring in other, you know, metrics to look at when, you know, they're comparing battery chemistry? Yeah, uh, definitely comparing across various measurements here and energy density is really just one of them cycle life is what they call lifespan is another one charge and discharge rate um another big one and what i'd say is most battery innovations or development is always a trade-off so it's rare to see improvement along all axes simultaneously and normally you know you're optimizing and there's trade-offs between some or the other but i'd say you know, for batteries that are going to have true, you know, mass market end use applications, the lifespan, I think, will be unnoticed by the end customer. So you can think of, you know, a few thousand cycles, which would be fully charged to fully discharged, is probably enough that you would never know it if it was in your car. And if it's on a grid, you know, you can think of it um, if it's charging and discharging daily, then 365 t cycles would be one year. So you can think, you know, 3000 cycles or 4000 cycles, that's a pretty decent lifespan that you'd get out of it and be able to fully kind of depreciate it. And where does, uh, I feel like we have to bring up Tesla here. They, I, I think it's going back on one or two years now when they discussed uh, their 4080 cell, what helped me understand like where that falls into kind of battery innovation? Was that more on the manufacturing of batteries themselves or was that, you know, incorporating new chemistry technology? That was more so on, I mean, it's, it's like a manufacturing and technology side. Um, some on the chemistry there they're like they're working on dry electrode technology um some of the uh what they were doing with like the tabs around the end so pretty much if you have a battery you have you know ions going from here over to here and all the ions they like the, the analogy people make is people in a classroom are ions and then they need to get out and go across the hallway into another classroom and so it's like if there's one door and they're trying to get out as fast as possible. That's pretty difficult, slows them down. You know, Tesla had this tabless uh, design, which essentially allows more doors so you can get, you know, more ions out and increase the charge discharge rate. Um, the structure was also just optimized for what they're going for. Um, but what we see is, you know, Tesla has that for certain vehicles like the Cybertruck um, and you know they had it in the Model Y it sounds like it's no longer in the Model Y um, and they're using a different 
cell format. So that's just the size of it. But Tesla's constantly uh, executing on what they showed at battery day and making progress along that side. I would say on sodium ion, they actually have not shown much interest there. That's not to say they're not doing anything behind closed doors, but at least to date, what they've really done uh, along with BYD was just be an early adopter or a quick adopter of lithium iron phosphate and Tesla's ability to optimize not just the battery, but the inverters and whole drivetrain efficiency means that they can use these less expensive cells and still get high performance vehicles. Got it. So that goes back to your answer to my first question, which is, you know, incremental improvements to battery technology outside of just the chemistry structure um, is still happening today, but everyone is also playing and tinkering around with chemistry structure as well. So pretty interesting. Yep. And, you know, I'll just some, uh, end with this. There's actually Bloomberg New Energy Finance just put out their uh, volume weighted average lithium iron battery pack and cell pricing. Uh, and it's at its lowest levels ever at $139 per kilowatt hour at the pack level. And this is notable because last year their uh, average volume weighted average price actually went up because of inflation and supply chain issues. So we're actually seeing that revert back down and we are getting um, reports from, you know, leaders in the space that cell costs are, you know, already back down into this 70 to $80 per kilowatt hour. This is super important because this is, in our opinion, uh, what's really going to drive EV adoption. You know, people run all these surveys. Oh, will you drive an EV? Will you do this? At the end of the day, we think it's going to come down to the end price to the consumer. And if you have a lower priced better performing vehicle that's electric, then that's going to be the no-brainer choice. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. <laughs> it's going to be that uh, Oprah Winfrey meme. You get a battery. You get a battery. Everybody gets batteries. <laughs> it's, we, need, we need more batteries. We need more electricity. Um, I think, right, you know, the future is more power and less expensive power and electricity and energy just broadly speaking. And then we get a Dyson sphere and we don't have to worry about any of this. We have the sun, Nick. That's, that's pretty powerful. That's what I mean. The Dyson <laughs> sphere is what that structure, theoretical structure that surrounds the sun and uh, just provides infinite energy to a growing population. There you have it. All right. Space we'll see everyone. Humans. Oh yeah. Nick, how was, how's your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good. I did uh, the lions game in Detroit, and then I went to the Michigan-Ohio State game. So a lot of oh, football. You were, you were in the stadium? I was. Nice. Single greatest sporting event I've ever attended. I am uh, a Michigan alumni, so that's why I say it. Maybe not for the Ohio State fans that were sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. Nice. How was yours? It was good. It was good. Siblings came in, all hung out. Good time. No football game, but uh, lots of food. Yeah. Lots of food, lots of football. All right. All right. That's, That's our show. We'll see everyone. We'll see everyone next week. Next week.